Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, stick to the plan, anticipate, don't improvise, trust no one, never yield an advantage, fight only the battle you're paid to fight, and if you can do all that while listening to The Smiths, well, even better. Hey everyone, my name's Al Horner, and this is Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. What you just heard was the mantra of the eponymous assassin at the heart of our movie this week. I'm talking, of course, about The Killer, directed by David Fincher and written by our guest today, the fantastic Andrew Kevin Walker. The Killer is a movie that deconstructs the hitman genre like Michael Fassbender deconstructing a McDonald's sandwich on a park bench in a bucket hat. It opens with a blaze of images that tease the explosive action that we typically associate with these films. There's a shot of black gloves fastening a silencer on a gun. There's a glimpse of a car crash we see poison droplets dispensed into a cup of coffee, all that kind of stuff. But that's just a misdirect. What follows instead is two hypnotic hours in which the violence of the movie's revenge plot is almost incidental to the character's meticulous ways and detached observations about the world. It's an absolutely riveting watch, but then again, what did we expect? This is David Fincher and Andrew Kevin Walker we're talking about. Unlike the killer, who misses his target early on in the film, sparking the descent into chaos that the movie depicts, this pair rarely miss their mark whenever they work together. They first teamed up on the iconic 1995 thriller Seven, which began life as a spec script that Andy wrote after moving to New York from suburban Pennsylvania. Since then, Andy's taken passes at Fight Club and The Game for Fincher. On top of his solo adventures in Hollywood, penning movies like Sleepy Hollow and 2022's excellent Windfall. 
In the spoiler conversation that you're about to hear, Andy answers my questions about the subtle commentary on materialist culture woven into the killer. We discuss the influence of the novelist Somerset Maugham on Andy's work and break down some of the film's most intriguing moments, including its enigmatic ending, in which a life is spared with existentialist questions left to loom. A huge thanks to Andy for being such a fantastic guest, and a big thank you also to our Patreon supporters. If you like what we do and would like to help us continue to grow, receiving some very cool perks in return, please do consider heading over to patreon.com forward slash script apart and getting involved. Script Apart is a two-person operation, it's just me and my producer Cam, so any support you can throw our way is hugely appreciated. Alright, life is very long when you're lonely, as the Smiths once sang. Here's the wonderful Andrew Kevin Walker on a Hitman movie that speaks to that very sentiment. You're listening to the first draft secrets of The Killer on Script Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in everyone. I'm Al Horner. This episode, as ever, was produced by Camille Demek. All right, Andy, this looks like it might be your office behind you. So let me begin with an office-related question. I've heard there's a motto about storytelling that you abide by, so much so that you have it emblazoned on custom-made pencils that you keep in your office and that you do a lot of your writing with. That motto is, your disappointment destroys me. Have I got that right? And if so, what does that phrase mean to you? Well, you know, what it means is if I'm offered a job, whether somebody comes to me with um, a a book they want to have adapted or they come with a concept, you know, Batman versus Superman, whatever, there's an enormous hurdle I have to get over, which is my own crippling neuroses (laughs) and anxiety about you know, look, every writer has pretender syndrome. Um, and I try very hard not to let my sleepless nights and my kind of nail biting about writing come full circle so that my fear of screwing it up uh, becomes a self-fulfilling pro- prophecy. But the way I protect myself is by doing extensive outlining. and. So with each job, I create a kind of treasure map, I could call it, just to, that tells me how I'm going to get to the end. And if I can find one of them, again, I, I know this is just, you know, audio, but I'll show you one. I break everything down into three columns. I do a lot of writing still in um, all by hand and in composition books, a la kind of John Doe, which Fincher's been making a lot of fun of me about lately or making sure to mention to people. <laughs> This is one I did for Evil Knievel, a script I rewrote years and years ago. But anyway, yeah, it just has to do with before I can take a job, I really have to convince myself that I'm going to deliver like 110 percent. I don't know whether that means the result or the effort, but um, and it's obviously a recommendation to anyone who's writing that, that to not take a job, but to be passionate about it. It's the most obvious thing in the world. But I think sometimes it's a hard thing to remember. And I have to make sure that I'm passionate about it. And especially like if you're going to write something for Fincher, who's a friend too, on two levels, you don't want to disappoint. Well, there was absolutely nothing disappointing about The Killer, Andrew, which I had such a fantastic time with. How have the last few weeks been um, with, with this movie now out in the world, about to hit streaming services as we speak? They've been incredible. I mean, and and 
and when I say that, not it doesn't it not even the last few weeks, like the last handful of years, other than the crippling pandemic that we all kind of went through uh, together. I hate to admit, and I've been quoting Scarface, you know, don't get high on your own supply, but I've seen the movie like probably 91 times at this point. Um, there came a time, you know, unlike when Seven, you know, was made so many, many years ago. In this case, I could push a button on picks and punch in my code or whatever, and I could watch a David Fincher movie before almost anybody else on the face of the earth. And I took that opportunity every chance I had. So I've seen it many, many times. Sometimes it was in a different state of, um, you know, and, and certain things were in flux, but I, but I, it's just been great because, you know, when you're, when you get a movie made, that's winning the lottery, getting a movie made you're happy and proud of is winning the lottery like twice in one day. Um, you know, choose your analogy, lightning strikes twice, whatever. Um, then you're just like, oh my God, look at this amazing teaser trailer they did. Oh my God, look at this poster, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so it doesn't just kind of go by in a flash. It, it, you get a chance to look forward to it, which has been such a pleasure and, a, and, a, and rare for me. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, it's interesting, Andy, your films often have like these lines of dialogue that leap out as addressing the audience while making sense narratively in the scene. So the one that springs to mind, of course, is in Seven, when Morgan Freeman's character announces this isn't going to have a happy ending. In The Killer, we have this line that Fassbender recites early on. He says, if you can't stand boredom, then this isn't the work for you. That line seems to kind of double up as like an insight into his profession and also maybe a warning to the audience that this isn't going to be the pulse pounding action spectacle that we typically go into Hitman movies expecting. <laughs> He's explicitly promising boredom. That seems like a great place to start diving into this incredible movie. Can you talk me through what was so inviting about that idea, Andy, making a hitman movie that stews in quietness and the character's innermost thoughts for a change over action spectacle? Yeah, I mean, there was a certain point when there was an assemblage and the voiceover was laid in. I'm not quite sure when we can talk a little later if you want to about the fact that the first draft had much less voiceover than there is now. And Fincher, as he does, as anyone would, given the opportunity, shows it to S Steven Soderbergh. And Steven does a kind of his own edit of it. Um, I think this one was called the hatchet cut or something. He was, you know, he kind of brutally just makes changes that are a, a, a suggestion to the filmmaker, like, what about this? One of the big things that arose from that uh, version that Soderbergh did was, and I remember it very distinctly, that line was moved forward, very much forward. Like, like it's practically, it is like the first line, right? I think. Yeah, it's really early on. How could I not know that? I've seen the movie. <laughs> time. But, um, uh, so, um, yeah, I love that it, it got moved. It, it was used to be kind of in the middle of his, his the first act of him, you seeing him work and wait and watch. And um, 
placing it up front really does do a service for the audience, I think. It lets them know, here we go, but yeah, we're not going to start out at a sprint. And, and was that the the kind of idea from the offset, though, to, to kind of do a movie about a contract killer that almost defies the expectations of the genre? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, that's that's the fun of anything that's, that's uh, you know, we all know there's nothing new under the sun. And it's the most valuable advice you could give to a writer of any stripe, whether you're writing a novel or poetry or, you know, screenplays, whatever. I mean, there's nothing new. So if you torture yourself about, I, I, I can't write about a werewolf. It's been done to death. I mean, you'll never get anything done if you just worry what came before. So, yeah, when you enter something, especially in genre where there's a certain expectation, the fun is hopefully to turn the expectation on its head to, to as I like to say craft problems into solutions and this very this became very much about within the story process like grounding the idea that someone does what the killer does um, in a, which is a very unreal thing you know most of us don't have that occupation professional assassin um, to ground it in some sort of, you know, reality. So if I ever say fun, you know what I mean, because writing isn't fun, but the fun <laughs> of, you know, figuring out, like, for example, the first 20 minutes of this movie is, you know, if you're going to go into a situation where you're going to be watching a window and waiting for the target over a number of days, we all know that you know, some of your, you know, your skin, you know, gets left behind. So where does this guy sleep? You know, he sleeps on a rubber mat that he rolls up every night. He, you know, what does he do? You can't catch everything that you might like leave behind, but you try to catch almost everything. You wear gloves, wear a certain kind of shoe. You know, you don't want to leave even shoe prints, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just really, it became, yeah, it became an exploration of, Let's not make him cool. Let's not, and we get in, we can get into this a little more if you want or not, but let's not make him worry about whether his, uh, you know, his drink is shaken or stirred. Let's put him in coach where a guy who wants to disappear into the woodwork would go and, and kind of, and let's also have him hide in plain sight, which he does a lot of. It's one of cinema's great traditions, like the Assassin movie. We love watching Hitmen as a culture. Having kind of written this great new entry, although quite unconventional entry in that lineage, Andy, have you got a take on, on what it is about them that we can't take our eyes away from? Like, why is it that even today there are all these names of assassins, John Wick, Jason Bourne, other guys whose names don't begin with J? What is it about the, these contract killers that we line up for again and again, do you think? I don't, I don't know. I didn't really think about it in those terms. I mean, obviously, look, in this situation, we had the, we started with the comic books. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, same, same thing, I think, with, you know, serial killers, same thing with, clearly with vampires, for example. There's certain genres that, that are, um, that are favorites to, with an audience, and, and, and are 
and lend themselves to many different inter interpretations. Um, and, and often they slot into a genre that, that fulfills um, the expectation of the audience. You know, action obviously is one of the most favorite, is that a thing to say? Is one of the most favorite <laughs> genres. So like it, sometimes let's just admit that it doesn't, it doesn't always matter so much um, the construct that allows us to have an amazing fight or the construct of the story and the characters that align that allows us to have an amazing car chase. Ideally, obviously, you want to have a mixture of character and hopefully at least a slight, perhaps, or, or, or extreme character arc. But I mean, sometimes you just sit down and you go, I, I just want to, you know, write you know, I wrote a script for Paramount a long time ago called Red, White, Black, and Blue. The idea to me was like any character development takes place in the backseat of a car or front seat going 70, you know, 78 miles an hour. Um, I wanted car chases to lead to foot chases, to lead to motorcycle chases, to lead to more car chases. Um, there's a lot of fun in genre. Assassin, you know, or spy, which were closely aligned, is a is a powerful you know fun genre as evidenced by Mission Impossible, James Bond, et cetera, et cetera. Like you say, John Wick. Um, you do, however, hope that there's a little bit more than just the um, car chases and you know shootouts, et cetera. But sometimes you're just looking to you know infuse something with as much uh, kind of genre. Um, fulfillment as you are with the character fulfillment as evidenced by a lot of what's made in Hollywood. Seven was, the, I, the concept of it was when I was, I came up with it when I was in a very, very uh, low budget horror genre world that I worked in in New York City. And because uh, I worked on with a company that made movies like Brain Scan that first thing that of mine that ever got made or blood rush about a, a murders in a fraternity house the idea of like explaining to someone a one sentence seven deadly sin murders take place and the and the, at the end the cop becomes one of the sins that's very very genre but and that when you once you start working you know up to your elbows in it trying to write it and figure it out hopefully it rises to a different level uh, once you're you're immersed in the characters and trying to build the story around the characters. You mentioned the the comics there briefly. I actually don't know much about the comics. What I do know is that for a long time in the aftermath of Seven, you, you very understandably had like a hesitancy towards taking on another movie about a killer because you didn't want to be put in a box, so to speak. No Seven pun in, intended there. Right, I don't want to be in a box. No one wants to be in a box. Um, what was it about these comic books? What was it about that as source material and, and your early conversations with Fincher about this source material that made you think, okay, maybe now's the time to step back into a murky world of killers? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, especially early on, I just had to be careful not to do a lot of serial killer stuff. Otherwise, I'd be the guy who only gets to write serial killer stuff. So, you know, people who've heard me talk about screenwriting are going to hear me talk about certain things 
that I say over and over again, and one of which is you can make a fine living as a screenwriter, um, getting a lot of jobs and never getting anything made or never getting anything made that you like. So there's this huge bonus when occasionally you get something made that you love. Um, so my point is like, I got to, because I didn't like just jump on any opportunity to write like another serial killer thing early on, especially, I got to adapt of Human Bondage for Turner Pictures many years ago, which, and Somerset Mom is like my favorite author. That's why Somerset in Seven is named Somerset. Um, you know, I got to do Red, White, Black, and Blue for Paramount. I, I got to adapt uh, a very cool French movie, Le Convoyer, which, you know, eventually got made by others, nothing to do with anything I wrote, but, um, but it was really specifically um, serial killer. Although, you know, Sleepy Hollow is a serial killer movie, in my opinion. I think Fincher has obviously delved into that world many times, incredibly expertly, and each time incredibly, with an incredibly interesting take. Um, there may have been times when we talked, you know, briefly about Zodiac, and I may have felt like I wouldn't be great for that because I was scared to become Mr. Serial Killer Writer, or as I think Jeremiah Chechik called me at once, Mr. Scary. <laughs> and I don't want to only be Mr. Scary, but I'm proud to be Mr. Scary occasionally. I'd lean into that nickname. Yeah, I'd have that nickname any day of the week. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm so glad that you mentioned Somerset Maugham because uh, that is an author who does seem to have a huge importance to you. A lot of Maugham's work like his, his 1944 book, The Razor's Edge especially, I think speaks to this idea that without purpose or meaning in our lives, humans can kind of enter a very specific type of agony that some people try to fill with like materialism, but that's just a black hole. And it's interesting, like that comes up or that that's, that same idea seems to be present in The Killer. And um you know, you know, the world of the killer is a world of products and branding and adverts and ubiquitous corporations like Amazon and McDonald's in a way that feels very pointed, almost to say like, you know, of course, this character, the killer has a, a certain hollowness to him because our entire materialist culture kind of does. Um, the opening 20 minutes of the film, it's 20 minutes of McDonald's meals and empty WeWork spaces and life dictated by some kind of smartwatch not to mention all these assertions that nothing the killer does truly matters. Like people are born and people die every minute of every day and, and nothing he does really affects those numbers in a, in a grand sense. This opening kind of, um, it seems to kind of really establish a guy who exists in a world numbed by a lack of meaning, by a lack of purpose, in a, in a way that kind of reminded me of Somerset Maugham. Is, am I right in kind of forging a connection there? I'm glad you are. I mean, I don't think I deserve it. I mean, the, <laughs> uh, I never thought about any sort of Malmian, uh, I like making up that word, any Somerset Malmian uh, kind of like character art. But I will say this just to diverge for a second, as I will often, unfortunately. In, in Malm, the thing I love about Somerset Malm stuff, and it's weird because I, the reason I fell in love with Malm was because I loved Ghostbusters and I saw Bill Murray in The Razor's Edge. And I remember, and there's a lesson in this too. Bill Murray said, 
I will do Ghostbusters 2. This is the story I heard. If you will let me do The Razor's Edge, which is incredibly cool. And if not for that movie, I don't know that I would have. Having seen that movie, I read the book. Or maybe I read it right before because I. it's always an interesting exercise, obviously, to read the book before you see the film. I love The Razor's Edge. I love The Narrow Corner. Some of the more obscure ones like that, like Painted Veil, which did get made into a film, um, A Christmas Holiday. What I love is someone who lives often in these Somerset Mom stories in a somewhat privileged world who goes off to an experience within the story and uh, Moon Sixpence is another one and returns from that experience completely, utterly unable to return to their position of privilege. They, they can't go back to the home that was that was so much who they were before. So I don't know, I mean, to get back to the killer, Fincher really, you know, again, process and specificity. There was a certain point where I wrote an impossible to shoot scene where I had the killer purchase his McDonald's meal and deconstruct it um, and eat it while sitting on a bench in what, because of my Google search, I found was the busy, absolute busiest intersection in all of Paris, maybe one of the busiest intersections in, on, on the face of the earth. And there would be dozens, if not hundreds of eyes on him that day, and not one person would really notice him or describe him if asked. And that was to, and there's a version of that obviously still there, but the idea was hide in plain sight um, by this this meal that is almost just kind of pressed out of a, a kind of mechanical machine and spitting it out into your hands. Like, um, you know, I, I said it to someone the other day and I don't know if I'll be able to repeat it kind of the way I intended, but everything the killer needs is if it's not within arm's reach, it's, it's within a 24 hour delivery window of reach. Um, and I think Fincher really embraced that stuff uh, early on, you know, anytime you put products or anything into a script, they could be placeholders. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was just interesting that he, um, he navigates a world where the things that he needs um, and the, the food that he bothers occasionally to consume um, is just it's just, it's, it's made available in some very interesting and highly commercialized ways. I mean, and I don't know that this really equates, but the idea that you can buy like a hard boiled egg in a, you know, individual <laughs> vacuum packed, you know, uh, container um, is, is amazing to me, you know, or a single giant dill pickle or whatever. I mean, so if anything, <laughs> That, that, that there's, I would like to see more of in the movie. I always felt the killer was kind of an alien amongst us in, in his way that he behaves in this way that he looks literally, especially at the beginning, kind of down on people, not in judgment, but just studying us in a way. So, so the alien quality, was, was that in the comic books? As I say, I, I don't really know that source material. So maybe you could give us an, an overview. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is like, and, and we can get into it 
you know, like Fincher had talked to me about this, I think it was 2008. And then I've looked through some of my notes and stuff and, and I found the original notes I took when Fincher told me the, he describes it at five chapters. And I think it was, it was either five or six chapter version of this story that he was telling me off the top of his head. And the, and the bedrock of the whole thing is, and, and, and still is obviously is this mantra within the story. My point is simply that, and we can get back to that because then, you know, 10 years later or whatever, 12 years later, he told me the same story off the top of his head. I did find my notes at that time and I shouldn't be surprised, but I was just like, it's beat for beat exactly what he told me. This is the story. This is the opening. It's going to look like a Chanel commercial. Then 10 years went by and he told me the same. But, but at that time, the comic was there was like a thin, I have it here, not that anyone could see it, but there was a thin kind of, you know, less than almost like half an inch kind of hardcover of the comic that I read. And I, this one is dog-eared to a certain extent and has all kinds of little uh, note um, tabs in it for, of all the notes that I took. By the time we revisited it, 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 it is and continues to be like a three-inch complete the complete killer soft cover is like practically three inches thick. There, he's those guys are still doing new comics now. The comic book, the thing that I really remember about the comic, and and Fincher said it. You know, you look at any comic book. There's the square captions, which are inner monologue, which is where this came from and what fed you know Fincher's inspiration. And then there are the you know the 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 word balloons. He's pretty. He's pretty spare in what he says, especially in some of these early issues. And, and again, like I said, we can come back to it. The Fincher said to me, let's do this and like have him literally, the killer say 10 lines of dialogue. Um, but the thing about, the thing that I really fixated on in trying to figure out, you know, trying to get over that hurdle of your disappointment destroys me, so I don't want this job, was, um, I didn't ever want him to be morally professing superiority while he's at the same time morally repugnant. I think that the you get a lot more time to be to spend being exposed to the killer in the comic books because it's not 110 pages, it's not 2 hours. It's it's a much bigger arc and many more stories. I just didn't want people to tune out of him early on so in addition to reading you know like i read the stranger the Camus book i read a bunch of nietzsche i read some of the nietzsche stuff we had been reading anyway years before as research for fight club um i read just like you know brad's character sever i i think i read the the dummy's guide to existentialism. But what I wanted him to say early on, and he does kind of say a version of it is, I don't feel superior. I just feel like I don't belong. I think the line in the movie now is I don't feel, it's not that I feel uh, uh, su superior, it's that I feel apart, I think. And there was a line, which was my tip of the hat to Camus, which was, I am the stranger amongst you, which got cut. But as far as the alien quality, I think that there's a natural feeling of that. Anyone who's kind of looking down upon behavior, um, you know, watching somebody put a few too many piece, you know, 
lumps of sugar in their coffee or watching someone feed a cat. And the way that he takes it all in because of Michael's genius performance, there is a quality of alienness to it. And we can talk about the blinking. I don't know if you've heard about that, but we can talk about that too. Blinking or that or lack thereof. Yeah. So that was actually written into the script, right? And it was something that Michael just played with? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I have a copy of the script right within reach, weirdly. But yeah, I think it said like, very early on, it said in the script, you know, you try these things and you hope. It said, if you pay at particular attention, but who would, you will notice that the killer never blinks. And yeah, they just kind of ran with it. And, and the thing I like to say is if, if you play a drinking game of the killer's blinking, you're going to be pretty sober by the end of the game. It's not very fun. Because you really don't get a lot of to see him, his eyes blink, which I love. It, I, and I almost hate to, to mention it because I think this movie sneaks up on you in certain ways. And I think that's one of the ways it does that you kind of just come out and go like, he's just like, there's something about him. And if you don't, if I don't bring attention to it, I'd love for someone to discover that, you know. What are the other ways that it sneaks up on you, do you think? It's very, very nice to, to see how, because again, like I said, I, there was a lot of anticipatory, you know, period of wondering what people would think of this, what I feel is like a weird, you know, movie. Fincher was, Fincher was saying when it went to Venice, one of my favorite quotes when he was, when he was at Venice, I think was, you know, okay, here we are at this festival of like fine artistic, you know, movies and here's our skeezy little movie in, a, in the mix <laughs> you know our, he's he's talked about it as a kind of b movie a, the kind of don siegelness you know um charlie barrick you know kindness of it i i find that some people are like say saying oh yeah like a few days later i was thinking about it i don't think there's any greater compliment and you know one of the fun things i always love about the potential of any movie is for friends to go to argue about it at a coffee shop or to have different interpretations of something that may have slipped by, you know, one of them. And I think that that's definitely the possibility in the ending of this movie. Or the idea that someone is going to watch it a second or third time and catch something they didn't catch. And I think that's been happening, you know, but, you know, you can't trust your friends when they tell you you really like it. They really like it, but <laughs> a couple of them have said they've watched it more than once. And that does, that does make you very happy. Yeah. Well, maybe we can jump into a few beats from the film. Um, I, I love how the opening scene really leans into the stillness and, and the monotony of what it would actually be like to be an assassin, waiting for days on end for, for a target to step into your crosshairs. It, it makes perfect sense that, of course, this character would have all these insightful observations on on how Paris wakes up compared to the rest of the world and so on. He has like endless hours in which to watch and note the the kind of minutiae of the world can, can you talk to me about how you arrived at some of the the really interesting but quite fragmented non sequiturs that he he talks about in this uh in this voiceover in this opening scene and um and yeah whether there are any ideas for other ways to to start the movie it sounds like david had a vision from from day one all the way back in oh, 2008 or so i mean i i mean i have my notes right here from him and and like 
And like I say, it was 2008. It's just like, and I won't go through every bit of it. It's like one, two, three, four, like five, you know, four and a half pages of like what I scribbled down as he was talking to me. It just says like first 20, meet him, see him waiting. Doesn't live there, which is a nice thing. You know, you just realize, oh, this weirdo is just like, this is not his residence. A little bit of that changed when it became we work and weirdly we work literally filed for bankruptcy yesterday uh waiting waiting maybe he has an ipod i mean what more do you mean it's like oh yeah he has to have an ipod my point being again it never opened any other way and it's that's definitely a kind of scene that's i don't know i don't know that it's in the very beginning of the killer comics but there's definitely a lot of waiting and watching and you know yeah, I mean, the very first images in the um, in the comic are looking at a window in Paris and him waiting and smoking cigarettes. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely reflective of the mood of the comic and the interior monologue that that is that carries the bulk of the storytelling in the comics. Um, you know, you always you read the source material, but you don't want to read it to where you let it guide you if you don't you don't want to let it overly decide what you're gonna do or interpret etc it was again it just became about process and it became about trying to for lack of a more artful way of describing it shove the audience's face into the reality of you're gonna have to sit around with this guy and wait and like but then when you start thinking about you know as the writer or hopefully as the audience well if you're watching a window for endless hours in the, you know, in one of the cities that never sleeps, when do you sleep? You know, so the idea of this guy having to set an alarm like on an hourly basis in the hope that he doesn't sleep through half an hour when the windows open and then they're gone. Um, th that <laughs> infused the whole thing with modus operandi, if that's the proper pronunciation, that would be required to do this work. And that you, the audience, are required to live through some of that without hopefully hitting a tipping point where you just go, forget this, this is a bore. You know, you <laughs> want it to be kind of exquisitely um, monotonous. You want it to be like interestingly detailed without being, you know, overly. And, and, and the one thing I say that, that um, or the one thing I'll repeat is, First draft had tons of voiceover in the first act and it established the mantra. And the mantras, as I wrote it, I knew there was gonna be one because I've seen it misquoted, but it was Fincher's idea from the very beginning that there'd be this mantra that begins to kind of fray around the edges and that his behavior um, betray a certain emotion that's, that, that's, that's forbidden by the mantra itself. Then the then at kind of at the end of the first act, in this original draft, it was almost all mantra from there on. And I just figured, you know, they'll do an assemblage and like any of the other stuff will be music cues and and there was a lot of silence. A lot of it. And then the first assembly with the voiceover that Michael did, which was amazing, it Fincher was just like we, we gotta it's not enough voiceover we have to try a version where 
I said wall to wall the other day and he just laughed. He's like, well, it's not wall to wall, but he said, you know, we need a lot more voiceover. And the lazy, I remember the day and I, the assemblage I had seen and the lazy Andy for a second was like, oh my God, what? But then of course, like, I'm like, well, look, the beauty of voiceover is you can be doing it. You can be discussing it. You can be reworking it you know, and debating it up to the, almost the very last second. And as long as your actor's there, it's one of the least expensive things to, you know, really play with. Like, you know, it's probably much less expensive than music in a way. And it has such a profound effect. So it was a tribute to David and a, and a, and a, and a glaring light on my laziness. <laughs> that he would always go, oh, you know what? No, we got to try a little more here. And we got to do this. David, I think the, David, I think the, the balance is just right now. And thank God he kept persisting about finding the right balance. And, you know, and the, you know, the analogy is when's it one brush, you know, brush stroke too many on the painting. When is the painting done? But I mean, and I've said this other places, it's, it's, it's sincerely meant that thanks to his persistence, some of my favorite things, not just in the movie, came very late in the story and in the process, and not just favorite things in the movie, but favorite things that I've ever written, some of the voiceover stuff. And, and, and the last thing I'll say, just because we're talking about voiceover versus this silent genius performance in, in this movie, in my opinion, that I told you, Fincher said, 10 lines of dialogue. I literally tried to have it in the first draft, just be 10 lines of dialogue. I got it to like 12, and then we added one more. So it was a baker's dozen, and I was like, okay, I fulfilled, like, that's pretty amazing that he literally says 10 things, and like that he can sit across from the incomparable Tilda Swinton and pull off a scene where he, he says literally two lines, and she, and it still feels somewhat natural, hopefully. and. His, his lines are judiciously placed as he wants her to, to kind of unravel, but she ends up kind of unraveling him. Then Fincher like would show me some of the footage and then he like kind of mutters thank you to the guy who drops off like uh, the, the, the room service card or he, you know, he goes, thanks for holding the door for me or whatever. And I go, David, no, you're adding lines. It was supposed <laughs> to be 10. But, uh, but anyway, it, it my point is, when it comes to the voiceover, thank God we struck the balance because David realized it was needed many other places. And it, it is very much, all of the writing is, you know, it's just very much um, a back and forth and a continuing uh, dialogue between me and David. And thank God he's so collaborative and thank God he's so, you know, creative and specific and funny and, you know, so... Uh, you know, uh, plenty of people come up to me and say, oh, my favorite line is this. And I go, okay, well, that was David. Or, you know, <laughs> that was our friend Bob Wagner who said that. But you just got to admit it. You know, you take the stuff as it comes. And, you know, a lot of the humor comes from David. You know, hopefully some of it comes from me. But he's a very clever, funny fellow. And, fun. you know, that's the fun of it, like I say. Yeah, yeah. Well, while we're on the topic of first drafts, Andy, you mentioned at the top that you're a big outliner, that you tend to plot out your stories very intricately before you sit down to write a treasure map, I think you called it. Was the outline for the killer always the same? 
Were, were there kind of moments in which you contemplated different plot beats, different characters and so on? No, I mean, that that's the thing. Like we were so specific from the outset that it it's, it's shocking how little it changed from first draft to what got made, except for uh, it's, there's a couple things here. First of all, there are a lot of specific things you put in a script that you feel like are kind of placeholders. It especially happens in a fight sequence because you're not there on the day. You don't know what the set is. You're not there with the stunt coordinator. You're just trying to write a really cool fight on the page that you know likely may have a shape to it that hopefully and, and a build to it at the beginning of the fight that is maintained. But it's not going to really you know it's not going to be word for word what so you try and find the right balance between being detailed and making it reinventing the wheel of an exciting fight realizing that it's going to change and then on the other hand you know you're right that the killer looks out a window and watches a woman put down a saucer of milk and a cat runs and drinks it and you, you write it and you feel like it might be a placeholder and they'll figure out what they're doing the day and then you see time and time again that david has executed these things you wrote and it's such a pleasure and a, a usual experience the first draft, the first draft is based on, let's, let's say it's five, you know, because I didn't really check, but let's say it's the five chapter story that David told me. What I needed to do for myself, thanks to my love of our old pal, Sid Field. There he is. I'm holding up my copy of Sid Field's screenplay, The Foundations of Screenwriting, which was which is this, which I, the reason I mention it is the absolute first thing out of my mouth when it comes to advice for any one who wants to break into screenwriting or, or is an aspiring writer. I'm a big proponent of three-act structure. So you probably find a lot of people who aren't. But I wanted within, um, and that's a big part of Sid Field's teachings and my screenwriting teacher, Jeff Rush, who was at Penn State. I wanted to find the three-act structure within those five chapters. The other divergence of this is those those imaginary people discussing or debating one hating, one loving, whatever, the movie in a coffee shop afterwards, I don't want to be part of that deciding any kind of debate or discussion. Anyone else's interpretation of this movie is more valid than what I would explain the intention was. And I don't like to get in the way of interpretation with intention and explained intention. I don't mind talking about it a little bit, but so to that end, I'm not sure I could say, t I could do it kind of on seven. I can do it definitely on Sleepy Hollow. There's no bigger like act break, I think in anything that I've written than a guy in Sleepy Hollow goes to a town who doesn't believe in supernatural. And at the end of the first act, a headless horseman rides by undeniably supernatural and does a bunch of stuff. That's that's the end of a first act, in my opinion. I don't know that I could say to you exactly, you know, what the end of the first act is of the killer and what the end of the second act is of the killer, but I can tell you they're probably not the big events that might feel like they are, and they're probably the turn of a decision. You know, like, I'm not going to say, because I haven't really looked at the outline or thought about it, but I mean a very important turn in the story of the killer is driving up beside the character who we called from the very beginning the ghost of christmas future which is tilda swinton's character who's in the who we call the expert driving up beside her 
and and having the ability to dispatch her and yet deciding i'm going to have a conversation with the person instead of dispatching her right now so i don't know that i would define that as the beginning of the third act but if i were looking to explain to someone in a you know screenwriting course like my three act structure of it that probably might that might be one of the ones that i look at but yes to answer your question i needed to find the three act structure and I needed the outline before I could say yes to David. So, you know, whether it's David or whether it's another director or whether it's a studio, I want to be able to talk them through every single beat uh, that I'm intending to write, you know, and the little bits of dialogue, hopefully, and knowing that some of it's going to change because I want them to know what they ex to expect. Because why? Their disappointment destroys me. <laughs> Well, I really want to come back to Tilda's character. Um, we'll get to that. I suppose in these kind of like traditional screenwriting terms, the the inciting incident occurs about sort of 25 minutes in. We, um, we get something that kind of upends what we expect from a hitman movie. We're so used to seeing contract killers in these films being these kind of well-oiled machines. Like we kind of watch this genre of movie, I think, to see the likes of Jason Bourne carrying out these skills that they've been trained in so efficiently. It, it, it's kind of like a form of like competency porn. Yeah. I'm just going to interject there just to say, because otherwise I forget, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. One of my favorites of that is Tom Cruise's character in uh, Collateral. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, but go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say like, it's, it's so interesting and it was so unexpected. Um, the fact that, you know, the killer in this film, he, he kind of bungles his kill. And, you know, we've been watching him for 20 minutes, kind of setting it up so meticulously. And then it all goes wrong. As he says, this is new. The rest of the movie, like we watch him kind of being kind of bumbling and he's imperfect in a way that we don't often see in these kind of films. W was that a fun thing to subvert? What were your conversations with David around around that tact? Yeah, I mean, and again, this is kind of terrifying for me because it's funny, the movie is in a few theaters, a handful all around the world, right? But it's like when the clock strikes midnight tonight on Thursday, oh, now as, as, as midnight travels around the world, everyone can see it. So I'm scared to talk because I have been so tightly talking about it in every way, shape or form. Um, and I, including something I'll get back to that I shared with like one or two people that I thought about every step of the way when I was picketing during the Writers Guild strike and in support of SAG, but I didn't even think about it the way that it would be. I mean, I did early on. So now we are in spoiler alert territory. So if anybody wants to, to turn off, you know, whatever device or pause it now and see the movie and then come back, I, I applaud that. But um, I said to David early on, like, okay, so wait, 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 wait. So you want us to meet this like, exacting precise like incredible you know expert assassin and then we see him like the first time we see him do something he fucks it up he's like yeah okay okay and then a friend of a great friend of mine justin later who i who i co-wrote who was one of the co-writers but on uh windfall had seen this movie because i was lucky enough to show it to a few friends fairly recently and he really zeroed in on that like he really felt like the expectation was 
again, like I say, turned on its head. And I was like, oh my God, you know, that's so great because I don't even know if I felt like, I don't think I knew that that was what was gonna, it was gonna do for the viewer, number one. But, but the big thing is, yeah, there's like, it's such a, you know, it's such a, not surprisingly, ironclad team of, in my opinion, geniuses, when you're talking about Ren Kleiss, who did the sound design, you talk about Kirk Baxter, who edited it. Um, when you talk about, you know, Atticus and uh, and um, Trent, who, di who did the music set. Kirk, in particular, really, and Fincher, obviously, too, talked about here's the pace of the here's the pace of the moment up until trigger gets pulled, and then it just goes to a whole different pace, and it's the expression. Everybody who steps into the boxing ring has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, there's another expression, which is just like, it's, it escapes me. And I should have like looked it up so I could use it, but it's that whole thing of, you know, police at, you know, on a stakeout or whatever. It's like a hundred hours of, you know, the tedium and like 30 seconds of frantic activity immediately after. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love the fact that you don't find out who he was there to assassinate. That goes completely unexplained. I also love how the plot really kicks into gear from this moment. As a result of this failed hit, the killer returns home to find his girlfriend was attacked, which sends him on this kind of mission of revenge. The payback arc, Andy, is a pretty classical framework for a story about a hitman in an otherwise very unclassical hitman tale. Can you talk me through the decision to make that the thrust of the film? It's it's really interesting in terms of, you know, what we've been discussing about this as maybe a deconstruction of the hitman genre. Well, again, that that was baked in Fincher's recipe from the beginning. It was the it was kind of the bedrock of the story idea was because like you say, he 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 starts to act upon emotion that contradicts the mantra, like the mantra is all about, like don't don't show empathy. Empathy is weakness, you know. Um, and believe me, there were much more verbose, wordy, you know, we really, really, again, it's batting it back and forth. I'm not going to say pick a ball. God damn it. I'm going to say it's like tennis, <laughs> table tennis. It's like, it's the pages kind of go back and forth. The discussion goes back and forth between David. And like, he may trim something and I asked to put something back or whatever. Speaking of Tilda, to my great delight, he was trimming stuff that Tilda asked to put back. I love you, Tilda, wherever you are. <laughs> and there are many other reasons to love her, not just because she put a few lines back. But um, the point is, um, that was from, there from the beginning. That was kind of like, some people have said like, well, couldn't there be a, could there be a sequel? And I'm like, I don't know. I hope, I hope like, I hope not actually, because, or at least I could say one of the things I love about seven is there isn't a sequel. One of the things I love about this is that it, it, it's, it's, it's whole, I feel unto itself. Like it, if you had a sequel, okay, I could see it, but I also could see it never having a sequel. And, um, sorry, no folks, I'm just kidding. Um, but, <laughs> um, that was what was so interesting about doing it. And if you were going to do, for example, a sequel, I think you would need, it wouldn't be some plot thing you're looking for 
to to hang a sequel on that you would get excited about, like being involved in, it would be some other underlying subtextual uh, context that, or excuse for a sequel that, that like the mantra. And I don't know what it would be. It would be fun to try and figure that out. You know, I hesitate to say it, but I mean, and I'm very glad there was never a sequel to Seven. But I'm sure you were asked a lot of times. Again, yes. And there are weird, there's a weird comic book that was kind of a prequel. When you think about sequels, the fun of, of just like when you think about adapting of human bondage, the, this great novel that's already been made into a great movie with a very famous central performance and actually at least two movies because there's the Kim Novak one. What's your excuse for you know? What's your excuse for doing it? You gotta, you gotta like, you gotta really tip the scales to say, okay, well, we deserve to re have another crack at this material. Reincarnation of Peter Proud. I did a version for Fincher. You know, the first movie and the book are really fun, but like, you you get to a point where you go, okay, we've we've in discussing, we've tipped the scales to do a cool sequel. I always wish that the sequel to Jaws had left behind Roy Scheider and everybody and just followed like Richard Dreyfus off his character off on another adventure. If I were gonna, and this is the thing I'm loath to say, if I were forced at gunpoint, please don't to do a <laughs> sequel to seven. My version of it is always that somewhere in the dusty, you know, bowels of some police building, there are all of John Doe's notebooks and somebody gets a hold of them or it studies them enough that they start to do a series of murder based on John Doe's notebooks. Whether Morgan's character returns or not, you, you all of a sudden you're like, okay, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know what um, any sequel to The Killer would be, but yeah, there would certainly be fun in trying to find something as cool as this Fincher fulcrum on which he swung it, which was the mantra and the fact that he's you know, at a certain point, he's saying, I hope that it's clear. And again, hopefully those who haven't seen the movie have already paused it. But I hope it's clear that as he goes marching off and leaves his little bracelet that shows his heart pumping much higher than he wants it to be, and he marches off to go fight the character we call the brute, he's literally, he said to himself and the audience over and over, fight only the fight you're being paid to fight. He's not being paid to fight this, you know, character called the brood. And that's the fun of this movie, hopefully. It was, it was all there in Fincher's core, you know, telling of it to me, you know, in 2008 on these pages that are in my hands that I just threw aside, describing like my old timey radio show. <laughs> it is interesting though, Andy, like the mantra is constantly oscillating throughout the film in terms of its meaning or its application like at times it feels like he's explaining it to us the audience like this code by which he lives at other times though later on in the film it it begins to feel like he's reciting it to himself as his ability to abide by his own rules begins to wobble like he does improvise he does show empathy or his version of it the mantra is one window into this very unknowable character. 
One of the few other windows that we have as an access point into who is this guy is the music that he listens to. Uh, the Smith's music has such an important part in this film. Is there a particular meaning, do you think, that those songs lend to the character and to the movie? Like, uh, d did you simply love the jarring juxtaposition of such bright, jangly, sentimental music in the ears of someone carrying out such ruthless violence? Or uh, is something revealed about the killer by the, the Morrissey songs that he listens to? Uh, but remember that the sentiment, to call Smith's music sentimental is... It's a com complex sentimentality and then I mean a lot of irony, obviously, a lot of misery, etc. You know, again, with the alien kind of, you know, vibe that I was focusing on when I was writing the character of the killer, you know, I probably described on his, uh, his iPod like, and I probably had him putting it just in one ear at certain times because he's always listening, but uh, for anyone who might be, you know, around the corner. Ryan Eno-esque kind of like more atonal, um, beautiful, but not necessarily, you know, super um, distracting in any way. Like, I don't know how much he enjoys music. And that's one of the things I love about, they did try many different versions of what he would listen to throughout this story. At one point, I've, I've, I never really saw this version. Like Fincher said, at one point, a lot there was a lot of like Tony Bennett. There was a certain point where there was all classical. You know that again, there was it was there was an ability to try all these different, you know, suits on. You know, try different um, possibilities o over and over, like different ones. For a while there, it was all eighties. But I only really saw the sequence where he's about to take aim and and you know using the eye drops and looking through and getting ready at the ultimate moment of act acting upon what he's been there for that i saw like two or three versions of the song for that but it was always from the beginning it was the smiths the song that it, it is now and i really love that there were many times throughout where i was watching them make certain choices and i was so grateful to be part of the discussions, but I didn't want to be over, or just nor did I deserve to be overbearing in my opinions. But I would, you know, almost kind of quietly be going, yeah, yeah please decide all Smiths, all Smiths. I probably said that, <laughs> but all Smiths is great because that's just, you didn't have to think about it. It's just a little Rolodex of these songs that, 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 like he says, that keep his mind kind of from wandering and, and, and that, that are a soundtrack. To his work life in a way and he doesn't have to think about it. he doesn't have to say what am i going to listen to now it's like it's the analogy is of course the you know the super genius who has you know a closet with seven exact you, you know uniforms or you know choices of clothing so he doesn't spend any time thinking about his choice of clothing in a way that's what that's like but there were different versions of it the insights that you can glean from the lyrics, you know, are particularly strong, I think, in the final song. But um, but there's a lot going on in that final scene, I think, I hope. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. It was like, I, I wouldn't have minded if it was classical as long as it wasn't anything too beautiful. I mean, he can, he can have something beautiful going on, but I don't think he 
he's a person who seeks beauty. Um, there was an early, there was in the first draft, it wasn't uh, necessary. It wasn't like a wee workspace he was in. He was in someone else's apartment. And I just said, like, he, he goes through this French, you know, kind of nice French apartment and there's art and statuary, you know, it's, it's, there's beautiful art everywhere. He never once glances. That's just not part of his, that's just like acting like he's going to enjoy food. He's just not that guy. No, that's so interesting. Uh, I think it works so beautifully because, you know, we know we bring a certain baggage with us, uh, what we know about the Smiths to to the movie. Like we we know that band, we know Morrissey, at least back then, as kind of this outsider peering in. His his songs were often these yearning laments of of being on the outside. That chimes so nicely with what we've been discussing about like the alien-like quality of this character, a man apart from, from the rest of the human race. Well, I mean, you know, again, it was, it, was, it was piece by piece, reality, reality, reality. You know, like I think that, you know, the shape of it is the same and, and the specific. If I sat there and wrote a long fight scene and said, First, he punches him in the stomach and then he throws him back against the wall and then they do this and then they and I described everything, you know, you would just drive the reader insane and they would just and I think they I think no matter how artfully you write action often a lot of people page through it with a kind of glancing kind of skimming through it. The most important part of those scenes, number one was the build up to, you know, how do you walk into somebody's house and then do everything you can to make sure that you're the one surprising them rather than being the one who surprises you. So, you know, he says in the movie, first things first. The other decision we made that I felt was very important. I, I'm not saying Fincher was advocating for it, but I, he probably asked at a certain point, well, why doesn't he just shoot this dog? And I was like, because you want the audience to not only not like tune out of him, but to tune out of the filmmakers, like, when animals, it's a pet, no pun intended, it's a pet peeve of mine. When animals are, you know, treated kind of cruelly or whatever as a plot point, that, that it's, there's an insensitivity to the filmmaking that I think you have to be careful. You have to be careful of those choices. So, but it also, the fact that he wants to get around the dog rather than just shoot it, um, it adds a, a, another, some of the fun was like, 30 minutes in, you see this thing that he chooses to do. And it's only 25 minutes later, you see why he did that. FedEx envelope is one of the examples. So now you have a scene where a guy goes, I've got a, I've got a big bottle of beer. I've got different kinds of, you know, sleep medication. I'm still deciding big, you know, hunk of ground beef and a, and a car shave for my window. And only a few beats later, you start to go, okay, I get it. I mean, you, you have an inkling. So, um, but yeah, when it came to the fight itself, you know, I, I just, I built a sequence where he's going and trying to find the guy in the house. And when he, when he gets to the end of the way I described the house, he sees this, there's a bed that's empty with the sheets. And that's very bad news because he thought he was going to sneak in on this guy's asleep and then mayhem ensues. <laughs> it certainly does. It doesn't, it doesn't. What I wrote doesn't bear, you know, I didn't know they would choose this location. I didn't know the house was going to be on stilts, you know. So the pieces are there, but the specifics are very different because 
then they're standing on the set and they're building that scene together and they're you know amping the intensity up much higher than i could ever do on the page to be honest and so yeah maybe the tv you know bit is there and maybe you know i remember specifically i i was like if you're gonna have one of these scenes where two guys are struggling and one you know or two characters are struggling and one character is reaching for something you know and they always there's just a knife or a gun or something just out of reach again you're talking about genre um you know kind of expectation and genre borderline genre cliche instead of a knife or a gun or like something i had i had him be able to reach a bottle cap a little metal bottle cap and have the strength to fold it in half and like i think i had him jam it in the in the brute's ear which throws off his equilibrium so all i wanted was to play a scene where and obviously that's not in the film that but that was just like i say my, that was my placeholder Oh, he's going to grab like, uh, you know, a knife or he's going to get a hold of a gun. Oh, he has a bottle cap. What the fuck's he going to do with that? He folds it in half and it's very pointy at that point. And he jams in his ear. So the guy runs off kind of his equilibrium thrown off because he's burst his eardrum, et cetera. Nothing in the movie like that. <laughs> Much better in the movie. And like an incredibly cool, you know, fight that that ends with, you know, a lot of fun stuff and 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 a dog that's still alive, which makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier the, the encounter with the expert um, in the car where he has the chance to kind of, to kill her there and then, but he, he needs a conversation first. You, you mentioned how important that was, how pivotal it felt. Can you talk to me about this whole portion and, and yeah, what, what it was you needed the audience to glean from Th this sit down with Tilda's character it's it's it, for me it's the most fascinating part of the film yeah good I mean like I say that character even though it was discussed over years as a male character was always called the ghost of Christmas future I've misquoted and sometimes said ghost of Christmas past but it really is the future because Fincher also described it as like you know two samurai one one older one younger meeting on the road and um you know, kind of facing off. Um, I looked in my piles and notes and stuff, and, you know, that that whole incredible amount of verbiage that Tilda has to say in that scene was constructed, oddly enough, almost in the same way that I would construct an outline, you know, a basic screenwriting, obviously, you you, you, a lot of people are breaking stuff down on a whiteboard or whatever. I'm, I usually use three by five cards or more accurately, three by five cards that have been cut into quarters so I can see everything kind of in front of me. I needed to do that with the topics that I wanted to touch upon with Tilda. The joke that Fincher put in, which was Fincher's, he told it to me one day when I was visiting him and sitting at his house, came kind of late in the process and we fitted it into what I had built, but first of all, it's like, okay, at a certain point we're saying the lawyer, male, the, the cabbie male, the, the brute male, you know, David, you, you've worked with Tilda Swim. <laughs> you could probably get her phone number, you know, I'm joking, but it's like, let's have, you know, the, the, the expert, be female and and who could pull that off well no one better than tilda obviously and thank god she said yes to it um 
she's I feel like maybe the only one who gets into his head really and it and it resonates I hope in the ending as a kind of very subtle kind of a ripple in the pond but and I'll let people who've seen it figure that out but that's I hope expressed also by the time when he's walking her out and it's pretty much the only time where his mantra gets stepped on by another character. And I really wanted there to be, an, even if he would say, oh, no, she didn't. She gets in his head a little bit. And that's kind of, so much of that stuff was kind of fun to write. The idea that like, when you work in a profession where at a certain point, someone's gonna punt, come to you know punch your ticket, you have to be waiting and waiting for it. And, and one of the things I think that's, you know, so cool about Tilda's character. She said, you know, I knew this day was going to come, but how did, how did I both know it and also not know it and not, and have it come much sooner than I ever wanted it to. You know, there's a lot of complexity to that stuff, hopefully. And, you know, look, there's just two amazing actors, one of which who's, I mean, both of which are giving incredible physical performances with in insane subtlety to them but but uh, you know but michael also getting literally two lines of dialogue i think it is you know again i would say it was fun to write but it wasn't i mean it was torturous to feel like how can i make this how can i make her tra train of thought have any sort of normalcy to it when it's almost a, a singular two or three page monologue but I've said it before when it comes to Morgan Freeman and many other actors, actors, you know, perform these feats of magic by taking, you know, the stupid things I've written and make them, you know, seem to really work. They're just, they're, it boggles my mind. I can't really speak to acting in a way that a director can other than just go, oh, that was great. <laughs> and it is, it's, she's amazing. I don't know what else to say. But but let me just like drill into that phrase like ghost of Christmas future. Like in that scene, the killer is exposing himself. He's he's doing all sorts of things that as someone who's trained to kind of like fade into the background, who we see in the opening scene going to such lengths to so meticulously disguise himself from from cameras and onlookers and, and everyone else who could, you know, potentially kind I'm of I'm gonna interrupt only because I think I'll lose this train of thought to answer this this is what you're asking there's there's there are very 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 few people on the face of the earth that the killer can go up to and learn about himself and see himself reflected not just reflected but reflected almost in the future to a certain extent so there are he can't resist going up to this person who is the antithesis it's the opposite of the brute who just, I mean, the, the best way to, to describe it is this. And Fincher and I are talking about him, Fincher asking me to place this new brief scene where he pulls alongside her and gets his gun ready. And he could dispatch her at that moment. But as he slowly pulls aside, the way Fincher described it is the killer's looking. And, and as he stops, he says, holy fuck, that's Tilda Swim. <laughs> I mean, there's no better way to say, why does he go and have a conversation with her? He can't, it's all contained in that joke, obviously, hopefully, but I mean, he can't help himself. She says it, you can't help yourself because he, 
another divergence. Someone said at some point, and maybe in a Q&A, why does he miss the shot? Why does he miss the shot? You know, they're wanting me to answer that argument in the diner question. And I'm going, my, I'm not, my, I'm not touching that. You, you, you know, it's cool if you're thinking about that, you go figure that out. There's a little bit of that in this, but I will say there's, there's almost no one else who's lived the life that he's been living and, and has a few years on him, I'm not saying a ton, but that he can go without asking, go say what, what, you know, you know, I think subtextually one of the questions he would like to ask is how do you get off this road? Besides, like, why did you do this to me, et cetera, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, tie up these loose ends, et cetera. But there, there's, there's almost no one else that provides that opportunity to have that discussion. And it's anyway, but I hope that's the question you're going to ask, because that's, I mean, that's my answer, basically. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. And it, it leads me quite nicely into the next question that I have to ask about, Andy. The killer's search for vengeance ultimately leads him to this millionaire who's behind the whole thing. And after all that bloodshed, the killer lets this guy live. And I know that you've said that you want to let some parts of this film remain as questions for the audience to solve themselves. But is there anything that you want to share about the decision to let that character live? What it says about the the corporation-saturated world of the film, that this person, this, this millionaire, is the guy who gets off scot-free? Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely a hands-off one for me to a certain extent. I mean, there are definitely little statements he makes as he... I'm not going to discount the humor, tragedy, and also kind of importance of, of the line, police tend to apply effort to solving a crime in exponential relation to the, the person's net worth, the victim's net worth. I think that's important. I don't think that answers all of it. But I, um, I mean, Fincher talks about it some, and I, so I don't mind repeating that Fincher says, you know, he goes in saying, I'm going to know when I look in this guy's eyes how this is going to go down. You know, there's, there's all kinds of plot kind of reasons, you know, Fincher said, you know, you, he looks at this guy and he's, who looks like he's been left, like maybe he'll never sleep again. And he has been shown how easily he can be gotten to. But that, but the question of whether he, why he makes the decision he makes, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be in that conversation with the people who are angrily, hopefully, or at least heatedly discussing it at a restaurant when one is saying, I know exactly why he didn't do it. And I, no, I don't buy that man. So I don't, I don't want to be part of that because that's what it's kind of all about. Like you go figure out. Uh, you know. Well, of course, the, the film then ends with the killer on a deck chair with his girlfriend. And the movie ends with him declaring that he is not one of the few, but one of the many. And, you know, we spoke earlier about your love of those Somerset Maugham stories in which, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the, the lovely phrase you used, but here's the paraphrasing. Uh, you, you love those stories in which like a character can no longer return to their world of privilege i think it it, it was how, how do you think that applies to this ending is there anything that you feel feel comfortable uh elaborating on i think he refers to you know the illusion of security i think he literally says that i guess the best thing for me to say is that like again as part of the process of 
deciding, am I going to take on, you know, am I going to take on this incredible opportunity to write this script for David from the very beginning? Where these two, where this guy's going to be sitting at the end on a beautiful beach with like, you know, view of the beautiful blue sky full of white clouds and this, this happy, this almost happy kind of ending. Um, again, I'm not saying Fincher was professed like fighting for a happy ending. I was just saying like, I don't think I can write it if there is not a glimmer of, you know, a storm on the horizon, I guess is a bad analogy, but that there is not, and I think it's there and I hope it's there, but that there's gonna be certain experiences and people that said things to him that will continue to resonate. I mean, the stuff that Tilda says, you know, Tilda says to him, when your time comes, and it will, probably getting it wrong, but she's saying when your time comes, it's not gonna be your life that flashes before your eyes, it's gonna be mine. I guess that's the closest I can hope to come to haunting you. He may just shrug that off, but I guess that I guess I feel comfortable saying that's not there's a, there's a few things that she said that aren't going to be so easy for him to shrug off. You know, she she also says like you kind of wanted to feel like I think what Tilda's saying as an underpinning of him coming up to her is you came in here thinking you're going to come at me and you're never going to let that happen to you, but you also thought you would never miss a target. So wake up, you fucking idiot. <laughs> but I don't want to talk too much about the ending because I mean, I think the ending, I think was also one of those things. I've even heard someone I spoke to about it the other day saying like they went and rewatched it and kind of rewound in the ending a couple of times. And that's fun to hear people do that. That's, you know, I love that. Yeah. I love, I love the inscrutability of, of not one of the few, but one of the many. And um, I don't know, for, for me on first watch, it kind of spoke to, you know, again we, we talked earlier about like the agony of being without purpose or feeling like a number and there are lots of numbers thrown into that opening monologue it, it feels like for all the journey that the killer's just gone on spiritually he's kind of like still in a place of of meaninglessness i suppose he's an unreliable narrator even you know an unreliable lying you know to a certain extent to himself there's there's a huge debate for, for anyone to have about the idea that, you know, that whole kind of butterfly effect of, you know, you kill one person and how, how does, you know, where does the history change based upon that person? You know, he's, to a certain extent, I feel uh, sometimes equivocating, if that's the word I want, like he's, his mantra is the way for him to kind of survive his own self in a way. And, um, and yeah, I mean, he's unreliable and I don't think he's, a whole lot more reliable uh at the end maybe i'm not sure uh you know he does you know kind of towards the middle admit to himself how's i don't give a fuck going for you because he's he, so he recognizes at least a little bit pincher showed us when we were on zoom like M michael and i and david early in the process like a drawing of like a brick wall like on a Three by five card and then he said like you know at the certain point he held up another one where the edges of the wall were crumbling and you know it's just that the idea was bricks are falling out of the you know the mortars weakening you know certain pieces you know he drops you know and you don't hear again and again that's another kind of second or third viewing thing i hope that you go oh yeah he didn't tick that box this time you know uh he dropped that 
coda, at the, you know, that he dropped that last little epilogue kind of statement at the end of his mantra because maybe it's not so easy, you know. I hope that stuff comes across because again, that was the intention from the beginning and, and it was hard to tell if it, we were pulling it off as I was writing it. You know, the mantra itself was really hard to come by, but it really grew out of sitting there in the room with him um, figuratively at, at the, in the first 20 minutes or so, 20 pages or so, and, and almost having him explain, which he's kind of just doing to himself, here's how I do this. Here's how I do what I do. This mantra is very specific. You know, it's a manual, it's an instruction manual to have those redundancies ready and all that stuff, it's it's distilled down into the mantra. The empathy thing being one of the most important parts, but he just, he's more emotional than he would certainly. Andy, your scripts often sound like they're kind of informed by external things kind of swirling around you, like either in the culture or just something in your life, like it was the the culture shock of moving from the suburbs of Pennsylvania to New York City. And, and the uptick in exposure to crime that helped you write Seven. Nerdland, I, I think I read, was written as you contemplated everything you'd done to survive in Hollywood. Trying to get in, yeah, trying to get your foot in the door, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Windfall, a movie that I absolutely love. That is an agonizingly slept on film. Uh, that was obviously kind of informed by the pandemic. Was there anything kind of going on in an exterior sense that, that became an influence on the killer, do you think, Andy? I just want to say quick, you know, the windfall was definitely the Jason Siegel idea that luckily he shared with I and Justin later and Charlie McDowell. We all are really close friends, or I should say we all were really close friends. And it's a miracle when you make a movie with people that you all <laughs> remain really close friends. Thank God we are. But that very much should be attributed. The genius of that core idea and then hashing it out was a was a began with Jason and then was a four-man job. Um, things in life while I was writing The Killer kind of, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Maybe there was nothing. Maybe uh, it, it exists in its own lovely little bubble. There, There's a lot of, you know, we live in a, in a world that feels a little more strange than it used to. And, um, and I think that those things are a combination of perception and reality and, and where the two meet. I mean, to have someone looking out upon the world with a certain amount of detached observation rather than some of us maybe looking out upon the world with frustration rather than detachment it's it's a it's a big deal to 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 i think have someone say and for us hearing it to maybe admit how important it is that that you try and figure out who the many are versus the few and whether you're kind of getting ground under the wheels of um, greed or progress or, or whatever. And, you know, so that stuff definitely was like somewhat informing, you know, his kind of, you know, it, now that I'm blathering on about it in a way that's pretending to be somewhat profound, but it's not, it's like kind of the difference between someone who, at this point, and I heard, I think it was actually Howard Stern talking about it. Right now, he's protecting himself by not watching the news. And like, I guarantee you, the killer's not, for different reasons, isn't watching a lot of news. Um, you have to be careful with the character, like the killer, where he doesn't seem like he's claiming he's got it all figured out, but that he 
figure it out at least for himself, I guess. And yeah, I mean, you can't have somebody looking out a window and deciding who's going to live or die without thinking about all the weird fucking stuff that's going on in the world to a certain extent. But, you know, I don't, you know, again, I started writing the script in 2018. I mean, I was pretty far into it, I think. I found one page. I write the dates on a lot of the stuff and I, I want hard copies in case everything crashes and I don't have anything left. So I date stuff and I, there's one that says Halloween 2018. So, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 20, five years ago at least, right? So what was informing me then is obviously not the same as, I mean, this was, right? I mean, that was before the pandemic. And then, um, and I remember visiting the set of Mank literally like a couple of weeks before everything locked down. So, you know, I was just kind of um, writing in, in a different world when I first started writing it. And then writing it in into and on the other side, you know, they, they were very, and everyone is to a certain extent now, obviously, but very much in the midst of pandemic, um, all the COVID, uh, they call them COVID protocols when they shot this movie. So every single person standing out of frame was wearing a mask. When I went to visit the set towards the end when they were, because I didn't get to visit the set of this. Uh, in 2018 or whenever, I was sitting there probably happily typing away and thinking, oh, maybe I get to visit Paris. I've never been there. And then when, you know, when the when they're shooting, they don't need one more dork, the dorky screenwriter who might bring COVID onto the set and shut them down for two weeks. So I only set foot on the set towards the very end and got to thank people and and watch them do some inserts and car stuff. But even then we were all wearing masks. Um, so it's just to say the, the world that, that when I started writing, it was very different from the world as I continued to write it over those years, as they decided they were gonna go off and make Mank, which I think is a masterpiece, or as I call it, a Mankster piece. But um, then, you know, lo and behold, and to my great joy, then this, they started into making this. And so much of the, so much of the quote unquote meaning, if there is such a thing in this film, is is voiceover related, and that, and like I say, that really became much more. Um, it was a that was a real team effort. I don't I don't mind admitting it, um, and uh, and it, there was much more of it that would be on the other side of the pandemic to to uh, to a certain extent. So it's weird. There are two different worlds. The only thing I kind of equate it to in a way, and again, I don't know that this is really answering it, but I was, I was working, I had this amazing job to write Batman versus Superman for Warner Brothers. That was the one where I most started losing sleep because of the enormity of these two characters that I loved so much. I was really into comics when I was a kid. And I had like a scene where somebody blew up the Washington Monument as a kind of protest thing. And in the middle of writing it, 9-11 happened. And it changed, all of my perception of what could be in the script, it it took it took a character Batman who was a much cooler, you know, more desirable character. Um, and I don't want to be flip about this, but before 9/11, Superman was seen as kind of like hokey and you know, truth, justice in the American way, and apple pie. Like, and after 9/11, you know, Superman was what everyone really wanted. You know, everyone here in America was flying the flag on their car and it's like it was an interesting change and it changed the way I could portray an act of terrorism 
as a plot point. And, and, and again, I don't mean to be flip about it at all. I just mean that, you know, suddenly I was writing in a different, everyone was, I was writing in a different world and, and had certain topics that was touching upon that were completely perceptually uh, altered by one moment in time. That Batman versus Superman script, it was it, it was called Asylum, right? Am I, am I making that up? That was the fake name they gave it. I mean, the, the beauty of what I've learned from Fincher over the years is like when they were doing Fight Club back in the days of, of people passing scripts around that were dependent upon photocopy. We did Fight Club drafts on red paper, which is much harder to photocopy and managed to keep that script secret, even in the heyday of... Um, uh, ain't it cool, you know, where they would do this really counterintuitively, not very appreciative of, of filmmaking thing where they would review scripts and, you know, it's like, hold on now guys, but no one's ever seen as far as I know, the draft I did of the silver surfer for Fox. No one ever has seen my draft of Batman versus Superman ever the draft that is out there that bounces around sometimes is the draft that was rewritten by Akiva. Um, so uh, that's just to say, yeah, they called it Asylum, I think, because that was the code name for it. Um, it did seem, you know, that was the script I, I wrote for Wolfgang Peterson. It seemed like it was on the verge of getting made at some point, but, and I think a very intelligent and wonderful executive at the time who worked with Wolfgang Sam Dickerman was really passionately arguing like okay guys let's do Superman Batman versus Superman first then go do your all your reboots look those reboots are enormous you know th that led into the Christopher Nolan you know amazing Batman stuff but I yeah it would have been fun if they would have done this before the last thing I'll say about Batman versus Superman I can't resist saying is I love the idea that they would paste billboards all around everywhere that were just Batman and Superman. And then a week before they put up one above it that is exact same, except it's torn down the middle and says Batman versus Superman. And people go, huh? Versus. <laughs> um, and I got to say this, and I don't know if you can find a place for it, but, I, but it, along the lines of spoiler alert, spoiler alert, I wouldn't talk to anybody about anything. You know, like my friend, Justin, my very close friend would say, come on, let me read the script. I was like, you don't understand. If David knew that I showed the script to anyone and that there was even a chance that we get out, he wouldn't murder me. So I didn't talk about the movie. I don't talk about having seen it. I didn't talk about any of the 90, you know, 91 times I saw it. But as they developed what I think is an amazing opening and very rapid fire uh, uh, title sequence, right when my title card comes up, you see someone getting hit by a car. So I didn't tell anyone, but as I would walk on my daily walk to go to a restaurant nearby or to go picketing, all I thought was, please don't get hit by a car. Don't let your death be on the front page, of the, well, the front page, on the 37th page of the newspaper in the obituaries. <laughs> and ironically, you were killed exactly as portrayed in the opening credits of the movie that so now that the movie is on the verge of being seen widely, I'm hoping that the the edge of irony will be taken off, and I won't have to be so cautious walking, uh, you know, crossing the street. Um, Andy, uh, we're running out of time, but but let me ask you um, two final questions, if that's okay. Um, f first and foremost, I've got a question from one of our Patreon supporters, Joe Morrison, who uh, who wrote this. 
Hello Kevin, massive fan. Seven is one of the movies that made me pursue this dream of screenwriting, so it's your fault. How do you deal with studios and or directors changing your work? I mean, look, the short answer is uh, I usually, when we reach the classic quote, creative differences, unquote, and we've come to loggerheads, I usually just quit and let someone else. Now, here's the problem with that. If I had not, in the very early days of my career, when Seven was not purchased, but it was optioned, if I had not stuck around when they put Jeremiah Chechik, the director of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, onto Seven as the director, if I had not dutifully, because it was my first job in Hollywood, basically, in addition to a script I was writing for Silver Pictures, if I didn't be, if I didn't kind of ruin the script, following his notes, doing what the director asked me to do, and I do feel like it just became a very different movie. Um, there was no head in the box. There was a kind of tableau of seven deadly sins in a burnt out church. If I wasn't the one who was doing that rewrite, then when the rights transferred to a different company, when Jeremiah was no longer kind of attached to it, when Arnold Copelson and the guys at Chechigori, Gianni Nunari, when those guys came along and, and asked David Fincher to come in and have a meeting about of the script, it wouldn't have been me that I would have been at that meeting. And it wouldn't have been that David Fincher was accidentally sent the first draft of Seven. Um, so it's a hard question to answer because you know, you, you're sometimes having to make a decision. Do I want to be the one who kind of fucks up my own work or do I want to step aside and let somebody, you know, there are certain movies. The answer to the question, the shorter answer to the question is I've never seen eight millimeter. It just is what it is that it became a very different thing. I never really saw the Wolfman because it just didn't become what it was. It's very gratifying on andrewkevinwalker.com. I say it again, andrewkevinwalker.com, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of my first drafts up on my website as a inspirational tool to show if I can do this and I suck this bad at it, anyone can do it. <laughs> um, but one of the upsides of having scripts on there that, that where I have the right to quote unquote publish it, somebody who wants to read eight millimeter can read the first draft of it. They can read the first draft of seven. The absolute first draft is up there. They can read other drafts of things. It's very gratifying. Every one of those scripts that's there is, is costs exactly what it's worth, they're free. But I mean, it's a hard question to answer because sometimes you survive a director, even if you make these you know, massive changes for them. But you know, the best advice is to stay and keep fighting the good fight. But I've had many times where I just had to walk away where I just wasn't you know, able. I've had a, a, a producer say to me, are you, physically unable to hit delete on this part of the script, you know, for changes that you want. And I said, yes, I, I am physically unable. <laughs> but I mean, everything you work on that has your name on it might be vastly rewritten without the other people having their name on it. A lot of stuff, and it's the case with me, you, you worked very hard on it, have made at least a certain contribution to and your name's not on it. That's just, that's just how it goes. If you're lucky, lucky, lucky like me, you know, a lot of years go by and you get, you know, you get another David Fincher movie that, you know, and you get to sit here and talk to you, you guys. <laughs>
Well, that brings us quite nicely to to my final question, which is one about the future, Andy. Like, um, this uh, fantastic movie is at the stroke of midnight tonight as we record, going to be launching on Netflix, reaching the entire world. Have you thought about what comes next? Are there projects already in the works? Are you working with David again? Is Of Human Bondage still in the mix to come out sometime? Like, uh, talk me through what the future looks like. I wish I could say if human bondage is still in the mix because, you know, you think sometimes, oh, well, maybe it's, it, it is public domain some places, but I think other places it's not. Um, future wise, I mean, like, obviously, occasionally I'll go to David with things. Obviously, I'm all ears if he comes to me with something. Um, there are a few things that are kind of out there that I can't obviously mention that. I would love to see, you know, look, I would love it if at a certain point, the, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that David, that I did a rewrite on that David was overseeing, finds a way to, you know, get made. Cause it was, it was incredible, his take on it. And, um, you know, I, I don't know where the rights reside, for example, with reincarnation of Peter Brown, whatever. I, with this, with this strike, I could swear in 20, in, in, in sorry in 2008 that that during the strike and I could be completely wrong about it but I could I thought they, they said you weren't allowed as writers during the writer strike to work on spec scripts not that some people didn't I'm sure but this time you were allowed to work on a spec so I did apply myself to a certain extent I have a spec I'd like to do not that I can talk about it and and I will say there's one other you know really there's one thing that I've written a script for, for a director that I love both personally and professionally. And when people hear that I wrote a script for him, the people who admire and love this guy the way that I do are going to go, oh my gosh, that's terrific. <laughs> and I can't say who it is. And I can't say what actors, you know, we're talking to. Um, but that does lie down the road. And, and that is something that I had a really wonderful experience writing with the director. And so there's a lot. I'm just so lucky lately with Windfall. God bless you, Netflix. The Love, Death, and Robots episode, for those who haven't seen it, that's directed the first time Finch is directing animation. I mean, I worked in the, in the writer's room of Metalocalypse, the Brendan Smalls uh, you know, feature that he just did that's, that's uh, it's out on Blu-ray. And for a while, it was hard to find because it was selling like hotcakes. But um, I, I love Metalocalypse, the TV show that from Adult Swim. This movie that he did is, I got to be in the writer's room with Brian Poussein and, and amazing other writers and just punch it up like it's all Brendan and he directed it. And I'm so happy to be involved in it. And again, all this stuff is on my new sexed up, you know, updated website, but it's just so fun to be able to say this to somebody. Oh yeah, I did something recently, it, 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 you know, I, I have a, a life past 1999 when it comes to writing. It's an exaggeration, but it's been very gratifying. So also having this script to kind of look forward to trying to make, um, we'll see what happens. But yeah, uh, I feel like, you know, the beauty of being a screenwriter uh, of a certain age um, is that if nobody's giving you work, you can always try and spec your way out of the situation. So I have a spec I want to write. Since you mentioned the strike, and no one can see this, so who the hell cares? But that's me. That's the oh. picture I took of the contrasting years. So <laughs> one picture is me in 20, 
2008. God, it's so weird. It's around the time that I was talking to Finch for the first time about the killer. And then one picture is, you know, from a few months ago in the exact same outfit. Came like a complete asshole. But anyway, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on, but a lot of it'll have to be self-generated, I think. And that's just the way it goes. But it's exciting to write stuff. Uh, it excites me to not be paid, I hate to admit, because I don't, I don't want to disappoint anybody. So when you write something and you're just fulfilling your own um, satisfaction level and kind of excitement that you got excited enough to write something on spec, it's great to hand that out to people. And if they hate it, then they don't buy it. You know, there's a, there's, there is, it's the closest you can come to having fun while you're writing. But as I say, if you're writing and you're having fun, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Well, on on that truism, uh, Andy, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart today. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Script Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.